Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Episode 11, The Man Without a Story. This week's guest storyteller, Dr. Michael Newton, definitely has stories to tell. Michael earned a PhD in Celtic Studies from the University of Edinburgh and was an assistant professor in the Celtic Studies Department of St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia. Michael has written a multitude of books and articles about Gaelic culture and history and is a leading authority on Scottish Gaelic heritage in North America. In 2018, he was recognized with the International Award at the annual Scottish Gaelic Awards in Glasgow, Scotland. He established the Hidden Glen Folk School of Scottish Highland Heritage in 2019 to teach a range of topics to students online and is reaching a global audience, including Scotland, the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. I am so excited to welcome Michael to the podcast today. He is going to share a story with us. And as is the way on the Not Work Storytelling podcast, we let the story speak for itself. And then we will follow it with a discussion about its historical significance and also about why the story still matters. And I think this story is unique and it has multiple layers. We're going to have a wonderful time exploring. So, Michael, welcome. Fulcha, so glad you're here with us. So excited to hear your story. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. And first of all, I want to credit the source where I heard this many years ago in the 1990s. And I was living in Scotland and became friends with an Irish folklorist named Michiel Ross. So I hope he's still around and I hope you might hear this because I've always remembered the story. It really made an impression on me. But the story goes like this. Uh, many of you will be familiar with the term Cayley. And a Cayley is just a visit. It literally means a gathering. And it was the practice in Gaelic Scotland and in Gaelic Ireland that in the dark half of the year, between Samhain and Bealting, that is between about Halloween and May Day, that everybody in the community would gather in a house where they would share their traditions, their stories and their songs and their music and their dance and tell jokes and proverbs and tell riddles. And this is the way that the community passed the time in one another's company. They came together in solidarity around their language and culture and they also discussed the things that mattered to them. And everybody was expected to be able to participate in this, that everybody would sing a song or they would know stories. So this was the cultural expectation and the sort of social norms. And it seems that many years ago, there was a Kaylee happening. And usually the man or woman who was the head of household would be in charge of the Kaylee. And they would call on people one by one. So the man of the house in this case was calling on the people in the community, and he came to a young man, we'll just call him Seamus, just for the purposes of having a name. And the man of the house said, Seamus, will you sing a song? And Seamus said, no, I'm sorry, I don't really know any songs. He said, okay, okay, tell us a story. And Seamus said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know any stories. 
And so the man of the house said, well, that, that's really, it's really unusual. It's kind of strange, but you've got to do something to contribute to the Kaylee. Uh, look at your feet there. There's, there's a bucket. So why don't you just go out to the well and draw some water from the well, bring it back, and then you'll have something to share with everybody in the Kaylee. So the man of the house then asked the young woman next to him to sing a song, and Seamus took the bucket, and he went outside and went to the well. And he stood there at the well, gathering water, and it was a, a moonlit night, and there was mist on the loch nearby, nearby the well. And as he was standing there drawing water from the well, something caught his attention from the corner of his eye. And he looked over the loch, and out of the mist came this beautiful wooden boat. And Seamus had never seen this boat before. He thought maybe somebody in the neighborhood had lost the boat. So he went out to the boat to take a closer look. And he stepped into the boat. And as he did so, his foot that was on the land side of the loch on the mud slipped. And he fell into the boat. And his weight propelled the boat out into the loch. And there were no oars in the boat. And there was no sail or mast. So there was nothing that he could do but just wait for the boat to come back to shore. And he fell asleep. And in a while, he woke up again to the sound of water lapping on some shore. And he sat up, and sure enough, the boat was coming to shore. So he stepped out of the boat. And as he stepped out of the boat, he realized he felt really strange, really different. Something was, was amiss. And he looked down at the land that he was stepping upon, and he noticed that he no longer had those big, hairy man feet any longer. He had these slender, delicate lady feet. And as he was looking at his feet, of course, he noticed that he no longer had this muscular chest. He had breasts. And other things seemed different as well. And he was very surprised and disoriented, and he didn't know what to make of this. And he was in a strange land now, in a shore he didn't recognize. And as he was standing there in perplexment, there was a noise. And a horse came. And a very handsome young man was on this horse. And he stopped. And he said, um, you look like you need help. Who are you? Where are you going? Where are you from? But Seamus was so disoriented and so confused, he just stood there mute. And, and now I'll just call, call him she, because this is effectively a woman now. And he, she didn't say anything. So the young man uh, picked her up and put her on the horse behind him, and he rode the horse home. And he was a very handsome, very nice and kind and gentle young man, and they got along very well. So eventually, they decided to get married. And they tended the house and the homestead very well together, and before long, they had a child. And if Seamus knew what hard work was before when he was a man, boy, this was even more challenging than he expected. And if Seamus had known what pain was before, wow, the pain of childbirth was nothing that he had ever experienced or felt or expected either. And this work as the wife and the mother on the homestead was very challenging. There was always a mouth to feed and a bum to wipe and dishes and, and food to tend to. And that one child became two children. And then two children became three children. And he had, or she had a very full life as a wife and mother. But one day she was down at the well, filling up the bucket with water so that she could cook and clean. 
And as she was standing there at the well, filling up the bucket on this moonlit night, what came out of the mist on the loch nearby, but a boat. And it was a boat that she didn't recognize. And she wanted to find out whose it was. Maybe somebody in the village had lost their boat. So she went to investigate and she stepped into the boat to have a closer look. And as she did so, her foot that was on the shore slipped on the mud and she fell into the boat. And the weight of her body falling into the boat propelled the, the boat into the loch. But there were no oars and there was no mast and no sail. So there was nothing that she could do but just wait for the boat to come back to shore. And she fell asleep. And then she eventually woke up to the sound of water lapping on the shore. And she sat up and sure enough, the boat was coming back to shore. So she stepped out of the boat. And as she stepped out of the boat, she realized she felt really different and something was very strange, something was odd. And she looked down at her feet and no longer did she had, have those fine, delicate lady feet, but she had these big hairy man feet. And no longer were there breasts in her way of seeing her feet. She had this muscular chest again. So she was back as he, as Seamus. And where was he but back at the well where there was the bucket that was half full? So he picked up the bucket and he ran back to the Cayley house. And the young lady was still singing the song who had been sitting next to him at the Cayley. And he burst open the door and he said, you'll never guess what happened. I went down to the well to fill up the bucket. And this boat came out of the mist on the loch. And I went into the boat and it went to another, another land. And I came out of the boat and I was a woman. And I get taken home by a man and we had a family and children. He, he told them the whole story. And the man of the house said, well, Seamus, you said you didn't know any stories. That's quite a story that you have now. Uh, you should tell that next time. So Seamus now had a story. Oh, Michael, thank you for, for offering this to us and, and sharing this deeply unique and yet somehow vaguely familiar narrative. <laughs> Well, it, it's really interesting, you know, in terms of the history of the story. We know that this is something that was shared between Gaelic Ireland and Gaelic Scotland. It goes back at least 500 years or more. Folklorists usually can recognize a story. Many folk tales are ones that can be found over, you know, many different countries and language areas. But there is no parallel for this story in Western Europe. It's unique to the Gaels. And I recently, in the course of doing some research for a book, a forthcoming book, which is a collection of Gallic folktales, I found a variant of it in Nova Scotia in Gallic, which has not been recognized before. So that was pretty exciting, too. It survived until recently best in the traveler's tales, in the repertoire of tales told by the traveling people. Mm -hmm. uh, I certainly in Scotland, I believe probably in Ireland as well. And what's interesting, too, is that there's kind of a variant of the story in the manuscript, in the, in the literary tradition from Ireland from about the 15th century. So we know that it was being picked up by, you know, it was picked up in this, at least this one case by somebody in a monastery, and they gave it a sort of religious setting, but that it goes back further in the oral tradition. And what's so there's a few more interesting things just about it, you know, from a scholarly point of view, looking at its background. One is that the story was as popular among women as it was among men. So there's always that gender aspect of, you know, who is telling the stories? Are they women or are they, are they men? 
how are they received by different kinds of audiences? What does it tell us about gender? And so the fact that it's very popular amongst the women means that there's something there for women to say to other men and women about what does gender mean? Mm. And so to me, it opens up an interesting conversation about gender roles and about, you know, parity and equity and these kinds of questions. Which, of course, you know, what could be more timely? Because, of course, this is why we go back to these old stories from across the centuries, because they tell us so much about what's universal in human nature, that we have not just invented conversations about gender, conversations about what it means to be trans in the last 20, 50 years. Oh, look, we're still human and part of a great long lineage of people who've been asking these questions and struggling with these and celebrating both the differences and the fluidity that works with gender. Yes. And speaking of fluidity, notice that the transition happens on water, which is a very typical kind of, you know, liminal space. Mm -hmm. It's during that liminal time on water that he becomes she and she goes back to being he. And then on land, there's kind of a more fixed gender identity. Right. So, I think we have the risk of you and I getting into a little bit of, you know, Celtic myth, Irish and Scottish folklore inside baseball. And I will, of course, absolutely bow to your much superior wisdom on so much of this. But I'm thinking a lot of Ushin and that idea of going across to Tirnanog and that sense of, of course, that doesn't say I have a gender shift, but I'm thinking back to the story I actually told St. Patrick's Day week on the podcast of the relationship between Patrick and Ushin and Ushin coming back and describing his story of having been away in this other world where everything was, you know, the land of the eternal youth and the land of the golden apples where everything was so beautiful. And then coming back to Ireland with either its warrior struggles in the days of the Fianna when Ushin was young to then coming back to Patrick's days with the new rules of Christianity. And I'm just thinking about the ways in which there's a pa- there seems to be a parallel there between those two stories too. Yeah, I would say that part of that parallel has to do with the power of the imagination. Mm. This is a story about storytelling. Yes. And what the imagination does with the vehicle here, you know, the, the boat is a vehicle of the imagination to understand what it means to be a different gender. Mm-hmm. And the initial setting is a Kaylee where everybody is expected to contribute something to the community. And a community has to work in solidarity. That's mm-hmm. how you survive. Right. And everybody has to share something that everybody appreciates. Mm-hmm. And if we are living in narrow little individualistic niches, Mm -hmm. it's hard to be a community. You have to be able to share empathy with the people that you are living with and working with. And that is partly, I think, about the message of this story, that we all have to contribute to the greater good of the community. And we do that by understanding other people, Mm -hmm. not being trapped in our narrow identities and our narrow roles. Mm -hmm. And it's by having this voyage of the imagination that Seamus or whatever we want to call him understands what it means to be a female in this community, to be a woman and what their sacrifices are and what their work is and what their life is about. And that's one reason why the story appealed to women Mm -hmm. because they could say, Hey, you think you've got it bad. Think of what it means to be a woman in this community. Mm -hmm. So that they could kind of insert their own perspective on their own experiences. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, and how 
I've been doing a lot of work recently with the hero's journey and the heroine's journey and what distinguishes those and, you know, pulling it out of the teeth of Campbell and, and moving us in some new, new and different ways. And in my research, I was most recently reading a book by Gail Carriger about the sense of what really distinguishes a hero's journey from the heroine's journey is the uh, a relationship to the collective and that ability to say, let's solve these problems together and land at hearth and home as the ultimate destination rather than that sort of hero's lonely staring off into the middle distance, I won, but at what cost? And so I'm thinking about that in this context of, you know, Seamus's reluctance and inability to contribute to the community. It was bashfulness. It was, you know, hey, I lift heavy objects. I don't perform for you at the Kaylee. Whatever it was that kept him from being able to be part of the conversation and the entertainment, he was offered a very profound and actually gentle teaching of, no, but it could be this way. You could learn how to be part of the community and that you do have something to contribute beyond hunting and building the house itself. And I just really love that, that it doesn't necessarily have to be that he wasn't scolded by the people, you know, who are running the party, you know, that they instead say, okay, find a way to be useful. And then the universe conspired to offer something even more profound. Yes. And it's, you can infer from the story that it is the other world, the forces of the other world that are teaching him a lesson mm -hmm. so that he can become somebody who can contribute to the community, who has something to offer for the greater good. And as you say, there's no violence involved. <laughs> this is not a hero's journey where he is like killing the monster. He's dealing with his own lopsidedness, his own lack of complementary, supplementary essence. Right. Yeah. A reunification with self in certain ways, those parts of him that he hadn't been able to see before. So when we first discussed the story and knew this was the story to tell, it was Absolutely, because we wanted to have a conversation around gender roles and how this has been a conversation in the Gallic and Celtic world for so long. But also this idea of toxic masculinity and that we know more than ever we need to be having this conversation, especially in our community of Irish and Scottish Americans. So I'd love to explore this and just start from here with your thoughts on how this story speaks to our habits of toxic masculinity and those grooves. Yes, I think it is a really important conversation or set of conversations that needs to be had for at so many levels in so many different contexts. One of the reasons I, I love telling that story is because people who come to an event of, say, you know, Highland storytelling expect to hear about these manly men and their military might and prowess at killing people. And they're not expecting that there's more facets to being a man other than that. And part of that stereotype that so many people are so invested in when they think about having a Highland identity is the result of empire of the last 300 years. It's the result of this huge military machine that was expanding, creating this expanding British empire since the you know, 17th century co-opting Highlanders into that force for its own purposes and really distorting the fullness of both Gallic culture and the potential of what does it mean to be a man in that society. And in so many other societies in similar contexts, you know, what gets reinforced, what gets validated, what gets praised and celebrated are the ways in which 
men can do the dirty work of the people with power and who want power. What you don't get is the other views in the men's lives and their vulnerabilities and their emotions. And so you get a very impoverished emotional landscape that's presented in the public view. But when you look at Gallic tradition, you can see a much more full range of the expressions of manhood and just, you know, humanness and, and emotions and vulnerabilities. And, you know, this comes across in Gallic song as well as various aspects of, you know, Gallic history, like you know, the, the poets quite often being, having this much more feminine aspect of their identity. And in the case of both Scotland and Ireland, because you have this context of empire where for a long time, the Anglophone world was attempting to conquer and dominate the Gallic world. So you have this context of imperialism and imperialism always comes with a story behind it. And the story is almost always, we are the civilized people. We are rational. We are strong. We are dominant. We know how to control things. And these other people that we're that are resisting our superiority, they're emotional, they don't know how to rule themselves, they're chaotic, and they're feminine. So you have a masculine-feminine polarity happening because of the context of empire. And so both the Irish and the Scots, Scottish Gales, I should say, were feminized in these kind of stereotypes. And so to fight against that, you have hypermasculinity also asserting it themselves which is why the Irish take over figures like Cúchulín in their attempt to you know, use Gallic ideology to create a new Ireland. And in the same way, Scottish Gaels then become these hyper-masculinized you know, military figures in British iconography. So I love that you offered us what's a very difficult binary that was set up historically and has become so complicated ever since. Because, of course, I think about that celebration of the wild feminine as often being what draws so many people to thinking about Ireland and whatever and, and, and Scotland. But, you know, that whatever vision we've created of what it means to be Celtic, which, of course, is in itself a deeply problematic, you know, multi-layered, you can talk to how many different scholars and get how many different perspectives on what Celtic really means and when we should use it. And knowing that in some ways it's become a catch-all phrase and that it's also become problematic in many ways, not just because we're probably goofing up our history and applying things willy-nilly where we oughtn't, but that sense of when we're thinking about toxic masculinity, we're thinking about this essence of the warrior culture it's only half a step over to realize how the Celtic cross itself has been used as a white supremacist symbol and how there's become this whole conflation of identity and misunderstanding because, of course, I suppose I could say that's a bastardization of this idea. And I know you've done a lot of work with this as well. And I think it's really important that we do focus our attention on how we look at the ways the narratives have been twisted so far out of joint and we figure out how to consciously rewrite them and tell our new stories which of course is the work that you and I are both doing in our own way yeah I think that's really important you can see so often how people you know white Americans so in a North American context of course people pick up on these stereotypes or these cliches about Highlanders as loyal soldiers, as these kind of empowered 
militants and use that, kind of weaponize that in their identity as white, you know, Anglo-Saxons. I mean, they're not Highland in any real way. They don't speak Gaelic. They know nothing about the culture, but they like the symbols because the symbols seem to empower, give them power, you know, empower their sense of quite often anger because they're picking up on stereotypes like Braveheart where you have this fight for freedom, you know, but it's decontextualized. It's not historically put in its frame. And so it's not unusual to see, for example, people celebrating, I don't know, the siege of the Alamo or gun rights or whatever, and see them wearing kilts. I mean, there, there is a certain of these white supremacist groups who like kilts and they're not very well dressed. And many of them don't really suit the kilt very well, but they, they, they like to sort of take on these symbols because it gives them some sense of historical precedent or some sense of fighting for some sort of ancient right or ancestral heritage, but they know nothing about it. And they're only taking one strand. And, uh, you know, of course, it doesn't matter what heritage you're looking at, heritage of Irish people or Scottish people or Ukrainians or Russians or Germans or anybody, you can find strands that are uh, violent and you can find strands that are damaging to people and you can find strands that are oppressive and you can find strands that are liberatory and you can find strands that are beneficial and beneficent. So it's up to us as the humans to understand all of the strands and where they come from and to choose the ones that are positive, that are life enhancing, that are liberatory, and that work in solidarity with the greater good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even to bring up more popular culture, I've even see, seen people use Allender in that way, ignoring the fact that these characters are very complex. And somebody like Jamie Fraser is actually, he's not just, you know, a military man out to kill everybody. He's had conversations just about his emotions, you know, and he's a more full human being than these very one-dimensional stereotypes. Well, Michael, I'm glad that you brought up the Highlander in the corner of the room because it's 2022 and the Highlander in the corner of the room is always James Alexander Malcolm Mackenzie Fraser. And I betray a lot by knowing all the names in that I have been reading those books since I was 15. They definitely crafted a lot of who I am. And I was that girl who was just discovering this, like, there are little islands off the coast of Europe. And I think that's where my soul used to live. And those books were were part of that process for me. And they've remained, you know, part of my life in various ways. And of course, it just reminds me of the fact that so many of those books, and the show too, and of Gallic culture is farming, And, you know, I mean, like, so that the life is so there's not a lot of romanticism to hoping that the, you know, the rains keep off so you can sow the seeds and you're worried about, and even just to say preoccupied with the survival of the community. And that has very little to do with pulling out your great broadsword. And it has everything to do with making sure that there's enough flour in the larder. And it's when we remember that's what so much of our ancestral energy, let's say, went toward the mere process of survival and was not all boiled down to what happened at Culloden or what happened at whatever, you know, the Battle of the Boyne. Those are those briefest moments of history that just happened 
to fill lots more pages of our books and of our perhaps of our great, you know, romantic stories and songs. Yeah, that that is so totally true. Many of the professional military men of the time were disappointed in Highlanders because they weren't very committed to just sticking around and fighting. They had to go back home and deal with the cattle and deal with the with the fields and the agriculture. So they weren't exactly ideal soldiers until they were recruited in mass after Culloden, and then it became, you know, a, a profession that was professionalized and around a cash economy and so on. And as you say, most people spent their lives and the vast majority of their time doing things other than fighting with other men. Right. They knew lots of songs. They composed songs. They played music. They had children. You know, they did all sorts of things. They wove baskets. They made rope. Mm -hmm. They thatched houses. They had a, a wide variety of skills. Right. And being somebody who was able to create an elegant and eloquent song and to tell a good story. Those were things that were highly praised, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, not just picking up weapons and killing people. Right. Well, just the, that uh, level of receptivity and perhaps even tenderness that's necessary to call in this relationship with the other world that is so present in so many of these stories just makes it so clear that people were much more focused on that sense of what's happening on the horizon right now and thinking about the state of the weather on the loch than they were thinking about, you know, whether or not there were marauders coming over the next hill and, you know, whether or not, well, actually, here's a question. The whole, the myth of cattle raiding and constantly going out and stealing each other's livestock, how much of that is a myth and how much have you seen that in your research really seemed to have been part of life? Well, it, it, it was part of life, and both yeah. in Ireland and Scotland. You had to be on your guard. But generally, there were people that were at passes and at certain places where people would be coming, and they would alert other people, and there were beacon hills where they'd light a fire and things like that. So you might have a certain number of people who were involved in protecting and guarding and keeping watch over those places, but that's not what most of the men were doing most of the time. And it tended to be seasonal as well. You would expect that there's a certain season when it would happen. And also it was a kind of, it was a, a rite of passage. It was a coming of age ritual. Mm -hmm. And so you would know, okay, the Frasers have a young potential heir. He's coming of age and we're, we're at feud with them. So we need to be aware that this is a likely time that that could happen. Mm -hmm. So you could have cues. But your, your mention of the weather is interesting because everybody knew how to read those cues. You had to know what state the moon was in, mm -hmm. what the signs were for, for rain, for dry weather, for when certain animals and insects were you know coming or leaving or whatever. So there was a wide range of things that people were engaging in that, had, that were not involved in warfare. Right. Well, you know, this makes me think about the sense that in these centuries past when life was so intimately connected with the land at absolutely every level. You know, nothing like this artificiality right now. We write about like, I love nature. And we talk about that as medicine, as if it is this totally separate planet that's outside our door. But it makes me think about the way in which we know that, you know, the natural world and its enormous spectrum contains, if you want to even try to calculate these energies as masculine and feminine, whether we do want to think of one being more like flow and one being more like solidity. All people 
who are living in intimate connection with the earth would have access to these energies in if not equal measure then at least in a, across the spectrum and across you know their lives they feel these different tides and certainties perhaps we could say always happening so rather than just splitting masculine and feminine into birth or warfare it's that sense of being present to all of it which is so much of what the story wants us to remember that all of this is here for us because it's just right across the loch. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And yeah, I, I would agree that the story tells us that we have to be in touch with and open to the fullness of who all the people are in our community that we're interdependent with and have something to contribute to everybody. Because the idea of the feast, for example, which was a widespread practice in Gallic society and hospitality. Hospitality is the highest virtue in Gallic society, not warfare, not killing. So being hospitable to the stranger, offering them drink and food on the road, that was considered the sign of, of being true to your Gallic roots, not being able to kill somebody with your broadsword or claymore or whatever. And I want to get back also to another aspect of this story in the in more recent times, which is the idea of toxic masculinity and toxicity, mm -hmm. because a very prevalent problem in both Gallic Ireland and Gallic Scotland and in the diasporic communities is alcoholism. Mm. The turning in on the self and the way in which that leads to substance abuse that then manifests as abuse of other people in your community, including your spouse, right? So this is, this is a very major problem. And is which is a problem in you know many communities where there is no ability to to have meaningful self determination, mm -hmm. to have meaningful agency, mm -hmm. and you know to me this is something that that needs to be addressed, not just kind of the external oppression of the Anglophone world on the Gallic world, but how internally within Gallic communities uh, and the, the the legacy of this in diasporic communities how there is a blockage. Again, thinking more widely about power and agency and, and violence. Wow. I think that that is just a profoundly important offering, just to consider the fact that this is, because in many ways it may be possible to say, oh, well, toxic masculinity. I'm not worried that, you know, as a woman would say, I'm not worried about the man of the house is gonna pick up a sword and start beheading the neighbors it then becomes that more quiet desperation that comes with addiction, that comes with that, that what happens with alcoholism. So I'm just, you know, just really profoundly touched thinking about, you know, a lifetime of my own stories and thinking about like, yeah, there's another aspect to that, that it's an opportunity for us to look and see how the, these stories feel all the more personal and all the more ways in which they do ripple into our experience, even when we're not thinking about lifting cattle or the rule of the sword. Yeah. And, you know, part of the problem with any society based on the use of violence is that that violence eventually comes home. And of course, there's quite a number of good Gallic stories that touch on that theme. Um, but that, that violence, of course, can be manifest in many ways, especially when there's not a good way to contain it mm -hmm. or to, well, to, to deal with the feelings that people have, because for men, Quite often, things like depression come out as violence, as anger, 
And again, the Gallic world being so broken because of the context of colonialism, that that brokenness quite often comes out in terms of collateral violence. And the most vulnerable members of society are the most likely recipients of that, that being women and children. I've also done a little bit of research about uh, the songs that were composed in Gallic and in Highland communities, both in Scotland and Nova Scotia, about alcohol, Mm. because there's been a lot of debate about alcohol, right? And the temperance movement in the 19th century was all about limiting alcohol. And that conversation, of course, was, was worldwide. And in many of these songs, even if they're composed by men, they will be formed in the form of a dialogue. And the dialogue is between usually the woman, uh, the wife, and the man, with the woman being on the side of temperance and, if not abstinence, at least moderation. So we're getting a message there Mm -hmm. that the alcohol is having an unbalanced and uneven uh, effect in society. Mm. Well, that seems to come back to that idea of when wildness turns toxic. And when that sense of if so often the feminine space, the wife's space in such a dialogue is saying, we need to keep home and hearth sacred and safe. And alcohol challenges that and disrupts this order that we rely upon. And so it just seems very much in alignment with that whole idea of, oh, right, if the Gallic world, if the Celtic world was always seen as that wild fringe where has that wildness been sublimated, been, been you know, disrupted enough that now it becomes this small bits of anarchic personal trouble rather than being an entire nation rising against another? Yeah, and it's complex. I don't want to oversimplify it or say that there's a really easy line to be drawn in the sand, as it were. Mm-hmm. And it's a very controversial topic because when I raised this several years ago, I had several people in Nova Scotia, men, of course, being very offended that I could make the suggestion that alcoholism was a problem, but it very clearly is. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, like did a, they do periodic surveys in Europe, and they did a survey in Scotland in it's about 2000, and found that the levels of, of both self-confidence and substance abuse amongst the youth were amongst the highest in Europe, Hmm. right? So why is it that we find always a strong correlation between, say, cultural self-determination or cultural colonial contexts and substance abuse and collateral violence? Hmm. There is a pattern there. And of course, it does make sense that people would push back and say, oh, there's no problem here. That's, of course, the entire history of alcoholism since the beginning of time. And, you know, I'll also comment that even in Gallic tradition, even before the modern period, there is commentary about alcohol, both the fact that it is a form of communion between, you know, the ruler and his subjects or dependents or clients, whatever you want to phrase it. You know, there are many positive aspects. It's, it's a way of connecting to the other world and the ancestors in the other world. However, there's also a line to be drawn and you don't overindulge. Mm-hmm. Being drunken is dispraised. It's not a sign of praise. A man who was able to, especially men, who was able to drink and contain his state of mind is praised. But somebody who is overindulgent and 
overly spendthrift with his money on alcohol is not praised. Hmm. So even in Gallic tradition, there, there are distinctions in the use of alcohol. And again, this notion of hospitality comes into play because the expectation is that you always offer uh, and have what you have in your home, uh, you offer it to your guests. And so it is part of the Cayley, coming back mm-hmm. to the Cayley of, you know, sharing in a generous, hospitable way, those things that are part of, you know, the community and communal cohesiveness. But then at a certain point, it no longer becomes cohesiveness. It becomes riotous kind of violence. Right. And it's, it's, that line, that distinction, that is actually is explored in the stories and the songs mm-hmm. of, you know, how do we do it, but not overdo it? Right. How do we find access to what happens on the other side of inhibition without getting into full-on loss of senses? Because, of course, so many of these stories are an invitation to enter this liminal space. Unfortunately, I don't think, and obviously it's not just a part of modern life, we live in situations in which we often need a little boost or so I might see it that way to get into a liminal space. And that's what alcohol can do is to say, oh, my imagination is more receptive. I'm more open. I'm more willing to perform. And therein lies so much of the paradox of alcohol itself, I suppose. That is a very good way to put it, I would say. (laughs) In general and in Gallic society, you know, you can see those connections between the altered state of consciousness that alcohol provides and stories of the other world and artistic inspiration and all these sorts of motifs. Mm. I find it remarkable that I think in the story, you never actually mentioned alcohol. You only mentioned a bucket of water. We ended up here anyway, because I think it's so much part of the landscape of these stories. So Michael, as we start to bring us to a close, is there any other piece of the story you want to make sure that we shine a light upon or any other closing thoughts? I mean, I certainly wanted to talk about the way in which this connects people to the wider community and to other genders and the way in which the story was used by women to also communicate that message Mm -hmm. and communicate their own experiences as women Mm -hmm. to other women and and to men as well. Mm -hmm. I think the story is really effective that way. And and it's, you know, really interesting that the story is specific to the Gallic world. So it tells us that there's something about the Gallic world where women do have a degree of agency, Mm -hmm. even if there are very highly defined gender roles, they still have power in their societies to be heard, to have a voice, and they do it through storytelling. And this means that we have to kind of take those hidden, undocumented aspects of culture seriously to see how women are able to exercise agency in these kind of non-official, non-formal spaces mm-hmm. and continue to be heard or you know, later not so much to be heard when society becomes much more institutionalized because women don't have such a strong presence in institutions when you have state building in the 18th and 19th centuries Mm -hmm. Uh, and early 20th century in Ireland, of course, because even though the idea of the feminine was very strong in that kind of Gallic vision for Ireland and you had very, uh, you had some very strong female soldiers and, you know, people involved in the in the Easter Rising mm-hmm. and later events in Ireland, institutionally speaking, women became very disempowered in Ireland. Right. 
Well, Ireland had female heroes, and its heroine was Kathleen Houlihan, was Mother Ireland herself, who was very distanced because the actual women of the time were too damn busy with the laundry in so many ways. Well, Michael, I'm so grateful to have explored this conversation with you and uh, to cover have covered so much ground, but all we had to do was get in inside a tiny boat and go across to the other world. I'd love for you to tell our listeners a bit more about where they can find you and what you have coming up in the, this spring. Thank you. I am teaching online at the Hidden Glen Folk School, which I set up a few years ago. I teach a variety of courses about Scottish Gaelic tradition and culture and history including a new course on folk tales. And I've recently edited and translated a book of Scottish Gaelic folk tales into English with the original Gaelic and lots of commentary about, uh, about the tales. That'll be coming out later this year from McFarland, McFarland Books. So probably Hidden Glen is the best place to go to find out what I'm doing and to also, if you're interested in, in what courses I'm teaching, to find that there. And I've also got a number of academic articles that are available on my academia.ed website. Excellent. I will provide the links to all of those spaces where people can study with you and learn from you. Um, you're such a wealth of knowledge, and I'm hoping this is only the first of many visits you make to Not Work Storytelling. Thank you so much. You have to translate that for us for our non-Gallic speakers. Uh, I, I said thank you. It was, it was good, to be, good to be here. Brilliant. Thank you, Michael. Before we close today, I want to tell you about a new offering of mine that I think you'll love. As a Knotwork listener, you know me as a storyteller. You probably have a good idea of why I call myself a word witch, too. In addition to crafting and sharing stories from the past, I also help folks uncover and heal their own stories. This work helps you to be fully present in the now and to create a more beautiful, connected future. I call this work story healing. And the new offering of one-to-one -one sessions is called Healing for Heroines. Healing for Heroines is a unique blend of energy medicine, intuitive guidance, and the language of archetypes and mythology to help you work through the tangles of life so you can weave a new story. Healing for Heroines isn't just for women. It's for non-binary folks and for anyone who wants to connect with the deep feminine wisdom within. Being a heroine is not just about being a hero in a dress. It's about deepening relationships, building community, and finding strength by asking for support. Learn more about Healing for Heroines over on my website, www.marisagowdy.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform, and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, and how to work with me as a writing coach and story healer, as well as my online writing community and courses at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at notworkpodcast and join our listeners group over on Facebook. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional Irish reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, 
Ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.